the Double Look Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, today it is our great pleasure to meet with Alan McNamara, the subject of the last couple of episodes that we've been discussing in this case. So just a quick recap in case you've joined us a little bit later in the story or haven't checked out the previous episodes or it's been some time since you listened to them. As a quick recap. In May of 1999, the home of the Shears family was burglarized. Jewelry, electronics, and other items were stolen, including a Land Rover vehicle. A crime scene officer attended the scene the following day and processed the scene with powder and made two lifts from the scene. One said to be from a vase and another said to be from a jewelry box, which was the sort of cabinet, larger item, that had various drawers and such to store jewelry, but had a flat top surface. The prints were lifted and then run through APHIS eventually, and one of the latent prints, said to be from the jewelry box lift, hit the right thumb of a man named Alan McNamara in the APHIS system. Alan was subsequently arrested for the burglary. He disputed the charges from the get-go and maintained his innocence throughout the entire process. He did not fit the usual bill of your typical burglar. He was a family man, married with kids, owned a household goods store, and was fairly well-to-do, making a very good living, 100,000 pounds plus per year. He had no history of burglaries, thefts, drug addiction, etc. He simply maintained that this must be an innocent mistake. He had no involvement in this burglary in a town that was located 30 minutes away from where he was currently living. He hired several fingerprint experts to help him fight the fingerprint evidence, including Pat Wertheim and Alan Bale. Both experts agreed that the latent print was indeed from Alan McNamara. This was not an erroneous identification, but rather based on the shapes and various patterns and the lift itself, the noise, the shape of it. This lift could not have come from a flat wooden jewelry box cabinet as described, but rather had to have come from a curved specifically tapered surface like a vase. When the case went to trial, the issues of the lifts were raised, but ultimately the Crown made the point through the homeowner that she regularly cleaned that home, kept a very clean home, and cleans those objects several times a week, and in fact would have cleaned those items with furniture polish within the last week or so prior to the burglary Thus, regardless of what lift the latent print came from, it would have come from that home and had to have been deposited recently up to a week or two before the burglary and could not in any way have been previously innocently deposited on a surface in that home prior to the burglary. Thus, Alan McNamara had to have been in that home and was the burglar. The defense then was to suggest that it had been planted in the home some way by the police. The jury voted to convict McNamara, and he was sentenced to two and a half years in prison. He would continue to maintain his innocence afterwards, even after serving his time in prison. He appealed the case, and the appeal was not successful. He took his case to the Criminal Cases Review Commission, and they also rejected the case, saying that the evidence given by Mrs. Shears, the homeowner, suggests that no matter what, he had to have been in the home recently to deposit his latent print. Thus, his options to challenge the the charges legally have ended, and 10 years have passed since then, and it is our pleasure to bring Alan McNamara on to the W Podcast and talk to our listeners. Welcome, Alan. How are you? 
Yeah, hi. Um, a little apprehensive, uh, but also uh, looking forward to our conversation. Um, it's very nice to uh, hear from you both. And I must say, I'm rather flattered that you're aware of my case and, and that you've been following my case for many, many, many years. It's very, very nice of you. Well, well thank you. As I mentioned to you when I first reached out, I first heard about your case in the year 2000 from Pat Wartheim. And uh -huh. uh, since then, I've always been fascinated by this and dismayed when I saw the outcome of the case, uh, because to me, the evidence has always seemed obvious that the lift with the with your latent fingerprint on it just clearly did not come from a flat surface, but rather had to have come from a tapered surface. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me just correct you a little bit on um, some of the things Please. in your introduction there, um, Glenn. So the evidence of uh, Mrs. Shears, the householder, was actually that she cleaned and dusted three times a week. Yes. Um, she, she polished one, once a week. Yes. And, um, and, and, and then dusted, just dusted the other two times. The, the, time that, the last time that she would have cleaned and dusted would have been the Thursday prior to the weekend um, of the burglary. Okay. So, so less than a week. So, so, so yeah, so it's literally... Well, it's kind of two days, yeah. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, so it's just two days. So the family, the family left on the Saturday, um, I believe, to go on holiday in Cornwall, and the burglary happened that night. So Saturday, Sunday morning, that's when the burglary is alleged to have taken place. So I just want to put you straight there, uh, Glenn. It's not a major sure. thing, but uh, let's get the facts right. And and the other thing that I really want to jump in straight away is. I want to make it perfectly clear because this is something that's bugged me for 10, maybe 15 years, that the prosecution have always said that I, that, that I made the allegation that the print must have been planted. So let's just get this straight once and for all. You know, you've mentioned your colleague, Pat Wertheim. I spoke to Pat on several occasions and, and Pat, Pat was very, uh, very good with me kept his distance, but explained to me and sent me some, um, some stuff over the internet wh whereby there was an explan explanation that taught what the difference was between fabrication and planting. Okay. Right. So, so I never for one minute, despite the prosecution's assertion that I did, I never ever suggested that a plant had occurred because Mr. Wertheim explained to me that although it could be done, the resulting impression would not get past a professional fingerprint expert who knew what he was doing. So prior to the trial, I, I just knew that that hadn't happened. If there was some form of criminality going on, it was fabrication, not, not planting. Now forgery, um, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. So, so yeah, it, it's, um. It's a misunderstanding by the prosecution. It's existed for many, many years. It gets repeated all the time, and it really bugs me. I never right. said for one minute that. Well, I'm, I'm glad I could propagate that same thing that, that has annoyed you all these years. <laughs> well, well done, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's been a pleasure to clear it up. So, um, yeah, there we go. <laughs> Very good. So that's out of the way. Yeah, welcome, Alan, as well, from, from me. And why don't you uh, introduce yourself uh, to the audience uh, here again, separate from the, you know, these, all these circumstances you know, that, uh, that occurred back 20 years ago. Uh, you know, welcome to the show and, and uh, introduce yourself, please. 
Yeah, yeah, hi. So the name is Alan McNamara. Um, at the age of uh, 38, I was a successful businessman in Bolton. I was running a discount store, which was uh, very, very successful. I was working with my family and members of staff. The, the business was uh, originally quite small, and I rented a property for £8,000 a year. Uh, in my first year, I made £30,000. In the second year, I made over £50,000. And then the, the property next door but one uh, came up for sale. I took a £100,000 loan out. I bought the property for £175,000. So I was no longer paying rent. And it was just a, an absolute success. Prior to, prior to the arrest, my life was absolutely fantastic. You know, I was married to a beautiful girl. I had a four-year-old little, little girl, uh, my daughter, Abby. Lisa and I were, we were eating out two or three times a week. Uh, just, uh, you know, I had a beautiful car. Uh, everything was just fantastic. It was, my life had turned out way better than I ever imagined. I was on an absolute roll, an absolute roll. And then all of a sudden, this thing happened to me, which just absolutely knocked me for six. And not just myself, but my entire family. The, the ramifications are so, so great. The worry was so just off the scale. You know, I think it was 18 months before the damn thing got to trial. It even went to trial right. once. And Sokko examiner didn't turn up for trial, so it was adjourned. My barrister was absolutely adamant that the prosecution knew that Mr. Birchall had to attend. And he just, he just wasn't there. Uh, mm. So, you know, that just meant that it, it, it carried on. Yeah, it just floored me, guys. It absolutely floored me. Yeah, I, I, I could imagine everything. Everything's going wonderfully. I mean, everything's in place. And then out of the blue, you're getting a knock on the door to effectively arrest you for this crime that uh, obviously in your mind must have come out of, of nowhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, just to give uh, the, 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 the uh, listeners some indication. So, I mean, there I was, you know, I was just uh, in my own home. Uh, I had a, a detached bungalow in, on a residential estate. And there was a knock on the door at, you know, 7.30 in the morning. And uh, there was a couple of guys, guys at the door. My wife answered the door and said, Alan, you need to get up. There's, uh, there's some police wanting to talk to you. And, and, and my, res my initial reaction was, oh, my God, I, I, you know, I had something happen to my, uh, to my business. That's, that's, that's what I thought. You right. know, so I got up and, and, and just uh, went into the kitchen where these two guys were. And they said, are you Alan Richard McNamara? And I said, yeah. And uh, they said, We're, we are arresting you on suspicion of burglary. Uh, anything you say may be taken down in evidence, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, uh, we, we just laughed at these two detectives, Lisa and I. <laughs> that, that would have been my reaction as well. Yeah, yes, yeah, and to, not, to and, you know, and not being disrespectful. But it was just, right. it, it just sounded so absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> so I said to them, you must be joking. And, and to be quite honest, they probably get that kind of response a lot. But I just said, you must be joking. And they said, no, we're not joking. Go and get your shoes on. My, my first thought would be, what, which one of my friends is, is putting me on? Which, which one of my friends has hired these actors to... Well, to, <laughs> yeah. I, that, that reaction is exactly the reaction I would expect, is to just pure laughter. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, I went back in the bedroom and got some clothes on, got my shoes on, and, and came back in the kitchen. And I said, look, guys, I said, I run a business. I said, I said do you mind if, if I just ring my father? I said, because uh, I have a, a shop. 
in Bolton Town Centre, so open. So he said, yeah. So I rang my father up and I said, uh, Dad, you wouldn't believe it, but I've just got two detectives in front of me and they've just said they're going to arrest me on suspicion of a burglary. And I think my father just said, you, you must, you're joking. And I said, no, Dad. I said, I'm not joking. I said, I've no, no idea what's going on. I said, but just open the shop for me, will you? And I'll, I'll see you later on. And, you know, uh, and, and that's how the whole damn affair started. At the end of one life and the beginning of a completely different one. Uh, little did I know that this would be wrapped around my head for the next, what, 25 years? I don't know, 20 odd years. Right. Yeah. So when they arrested you and took you down to the station, they would have effectively booked you in and taken your fingerprints again at, at that point. According to the record, uh, there was something that the, the arresting officer, this DC Hart, would have said. Could you get into that a little bit? Because this becomes an issue uh, not only at trial, but something that, that is raised a couple of times. Can you talk about that a little bit? Okay, so let me explain. So, so we came out of my house. Um, I got in the back of the car with the two detectives in the front. Uh, the, the detectives were DC Hart and uh, Sergeant Bush. You know, I wasn't handcuffed or anything, and I just kind of, as we pulled away, I rested my elbows on either side of the back of their chairs, and I put my head through the middle, and I just said, look, guys, I said, are you sure you've got the right man? I'm Alan Richard McNamara. And the response from DC Hart was, yeah, it's fucking you, all right. You used to live in Braitme, didn't you? No. Uh, to say I was shocked is putting it mildly. Uh, so I go from being arrested. Well, well, yeah, I go from being arrested in the kitchen. And then within a matter of seconds, this guy's swearing at me and making some accusations about Braitmit, which is an area, Bolton, where I did used to live. Uh, in fact, it was my very, very first cottage that I ever bought when I was in my um, kind of like mid-twenties, nestled in, in the middle of a, effectively of, of a park. And I lived there quite harmoniously with the rest of the neighbours for many years until uh, an idiot moved in next door. <laughs> so what did happen with this idiot neighbour, him, Braitman? I lived there for two or three years with all the other neighbours, and um, it, it really was just a, an, an idyllic spot. It was, um, you know, it, it was a lovely place to live. Any guy as a first home would have been extremely pleased with getting that cottage. Um, yeah, everyone was really nice, you know. And then, unfortunately, the, the old fella uh, next door to me, he died. And this guy moved in with what I presumed was his wife. And it just changed completely. So... There was no introduction from themselves when they moved in. And the first thing that ever happened within a week of them moving in was there was a knock at the door. My wife, uh, my girlfriend at the time, Lisa, opened the door and the woman said, can you turn that pissy music down? This was what these people were like. These people came from a rough background. And, you know, they didn't, they just didn't know how to behave. Anyway, so this issue over sound became worse and worse over time. The, the, guy not, the guy knocked all the plaster off the wall, the wall in between us both. From then on, I could hear his telly. I could hear his telephone conversations. Uh, I'm sure he could hear me and my, my telephone conversations. 
So this 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 was the kind of guy that would go out in 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 the snow uh, and go and get something from his car, and he'd, he'd have no top on. You know, he, he obviously came from a background where the tough guy image was kind of the thing. Yeah. In the states, we call that white trash trailer trash. I'm getting a yeah. picture here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we've yeah. we've got a very clear picture. And, and I mean, you know, if if there was if ever there was a contrast between two people, well, there you've got it. Because I was the absolute opposite to what what that guy was. Right. You know, I'm not a big fella, but I've never allowed anyone to push me around. You should be allowed to make noise if you want to at weekends. You know, he'd even he'd even be banging on the uh, banging on the damn wall, telling me to shut up. You know, on New Year's Eve or Christmas Eve. Uh, you know, that's the kind of guy he was. So, and mm-hmm. and I mean to to kind of like you know, paint a further picture. You know, he was seen by myself and other neighbors transferring electrical goods out of his house into the car. And then shortly afterwards, he was burgled whilst on holiday. Hmm. Yeah. Then, yeah. And then uh, at a later stage, my wife and I were burgled whilst we were on holiday. He attacked me at the local petrol station. He attacked me whilst walking down the road. And then um, sometime afterwards, I actually heard him arranging to have the job sorted. I heard him speaking to someone on the phone quite clearly. I heard the conversation starting and then I put my ear to the wall and I heard him arranging to have something done to me. But a few days later at my home and vehicle were attacked by two men wearing balaclavas and yielding baseball bats. They smashed the front door to pieces. They smashed the back door to pieces and uh, um, they battered hell out of the car and wrote the car off. Wait, wait, so you were you at home when this happened? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You were about... in your house, two guys wearing ski masks basically show up with baseball bats and just start beating your house and your car. Yep, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that's insane. Jeez. Because because I lived effectively in a park, you know, they they ran off, you know, into the park and off into the into the distance. So that was kind of, uh, that was that. And then sometime later in, in summer, he arrived home. He, he, he would have regular Sunday sessions and get drunk in, in, in a pub, an old haunt of his. Um, he came home just as I was, I mean, the timing was so bad. He came down his little, down to his door, just as I was coming out. And he started having a go at me immediately and spat in my face. Now, I don't know what, how you guys kind of react to things like that, but I mean, I just punched the guy straight in the face. Good for you. That's what <laughs> yeah. I would have done too, man. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I hear you. I can't think of anything more disgusting than, than being the, the recipients of something like that. And then we brawled for a while. We brawled um, all over the place, you know, and then went inside. We then, Lisa and I, we called the police. And then whilst we were waiting for the police, a big bloke turned up who I now know to be the brother of this neighbor. And he made threats to me whilst I was in the house, effing mm. and blinding and wielding this baseball uh, uh, bat about, which then alerted the attention of the neighbor across the road, who was a policeman. So he came out to see what the hell was going on. And this big guy then went and threatened the policeman. Wow. Yeah, not, not, not something that you want to do, really. Um, so this then prompted the, the policeman to call for emergency assistance and three police cars came hurtling down the road and he and I, we were both arrested and we were taken down to the local police station. Uh, We were interviewed separately, so I don't know what happened to him, but I was fingerprinted. Presumably he was. I've never been able to establish 
whether he was or not. And then, you know, I was shook, I was shook up. I think I even cried after it was all over with. The, the sergeant took me to one side and he said, Alan, he said, I want you to listen to me. And he just looked at me and he said, where you live? I said, yeah. He said, sell that house and move away. And he just turned his back on me and disappeared. Yeah. Anyway, so he and I, uh, Mr. Bretherton, the neighbor, we appeared at magistrate's court. We were bound over to keep the peace. And soon afterwards, we sold the house. Now, did you sell it on a weekend that he was on, your neighbor was on holiday? Because I could see that being difficult to sell if he was home. <laughs> oh, my word. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how long it was, guys. But, you know, it was a, it was a very saleable property because it was a beautiful, beautiful, cute little cottage. And we were, we were very, very sad to leave. We really yeah, were. Until the new person moves in and realizes the nightmare that they have to deal with. Yeah. Well, who knows? <laughs> who knows? I don't know. So, yeah. I, I, and I suppose the important point here um is that um and that's where the arresting that's where the fingerprint card on file comes from that is hit in the aphis system after my arrest through a friend of a friend i was put in touch with a a, a solicitor called mr shimmin mm -hmm. um this the solicitors were called halliwells and so i mean it was very strange going to see a solicitor about you know a criminal issue i mean it was just so horrendous for me just absolutely horrendous, so degrading, you know, to have to take time out, out of the business and go to a different town and speak to a criminal lawyer. Really strange, really strange. Did you get the sense that the solicitor believed you that, uh, you know, a lot of times they get these cases over and over and of course they have to represent a client, but they, you know, they've seen the same thing over and over. Did he seem to really, did you get the sense? That, oh, this must just be some kind of mistake. He was immediately on your side. Did you get that sense? Uh, yeah, pretty much so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously any solicitor, you know, worth his sense would have to, you know, take it step by step. But, you know, th there isn't anybody that I've ever spoke to who's ever questioned my innocence. You know, anyone who takes the time to listen to what I have to say. Mm -hmm. th they, they never react by saying, you know what, I think you're a lying bastard. Uh, it just doesn't, it just doesn't happen, you know? Um, right. So, so, you know, uh, so Mr. Shimon, he, he said, well, he said, have you ever been in, in trouble with the police before? So I said, well, n not in any serious sense. I said, but, uh, you know, I said, you know, I said when I was about 17, I got done for traveling down a one way street on a push bike when I was a student. So he said, yeah. And I said, um, you know, I've also had a, a cannabis cannabis conviction from 1985 where um i was caught with a, a couple of grams of cannabis on a a weekend away with a couple of mates and i said i've also uh, had a um a, an altercation with a neighbor where the police were involved so this was the first day and he listened to me and um so he said you know he said well are the police your enemies for for any reason w would there be any reason why the police would want to frame you and i said no I said, no, no, not, not at all. I said, mm. um, you know, the, the police are my friends. I said, you know, I have, I have issues in the shops sometimes with, with unruly people and they come and give me assistance. I, you know, I said, mm. I've never, ever had an issue with the police. Uh, never in my life. And so that was that. And then the second time that I met Mr. Shimin, he, he had my antecedents. Do you, do you guys call, call a record antecedents over there? No, no, this is actually a, a phrase from the records that surprised me. I'd never heard that. We call them priors here. Priors, right, okay. 
And so he said, he said, Ellen, he said, just tell me again what, what happened with this neighbor. So, you know, I explained to him and he, and he said, and, and what happened? I said, well, you know, we went to magistrate's court. I said, and we were, we were, we were bound over to keep the peace. That's what the judge said. And I said, and then I had a very brief conversation with the solicitor afterwards. And he just, uh, the solicitor really, he really couldn't be bothered with me. It was just a, a very kind of like, um, perfunctory action. Well, it's just a very trivial matter for, for this solicitor. Sure. And, he, and, right. he, and he just said, he said, uh, he said, look, Alan, he said, you've been bound over to keep the peace. He said, that means that you've both got to keep your hands off each other. Otherwise, if it happens again, right. this altercation will be taken into account as well as the second one. Uh, and, and to be quite honest, that, that was that. Was that. I, I just went away and but I just all, always assumed that it was just a bind over and um, it was just kind of like a bit of a ticking off. And Mr. Right. Shimmin, the solicitor, said, well, you know, the antecedents that I see here don't show any record of that. He said the the uh, the cannabis conviction is here. Huh. But th there isn't anything else. Oh, that's it. Th all right. That's very interesting. And, and, and that was that I had told Mr. Shimmin that when I was arrested, that the detective said to me, it's fucking you, all right? You used to live in Braitmouth. And, and so Mr. Shimmin was saying, well, where did you live? when you were arrested for the cannabis conviction. So at that time, I lived with my parents um, in a place called Little Lever. And so he said, well, you know, where, where did you live when you were arrested for the uh, altercation with the neighbor? So I said, I lived in, in Oakenbottom Road in Braemers in Boom. So he said, well, there is no mention of Braemers here. Hmm. So I said, so, so what, what are you getting at? He said, well, you've just told me that he said in the car, it's fucking you, all right? You used to live in Braemouth. So I said, yeah. So he looks at me. He said, well, it's not on your records. So I said, so what? And he said, I don't think you're getting my points. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said he wouldn't know that you lived in Braemouth. So I said, well, he's a policeman. Surely there's, there's, there's ways and means. And he just said, no, not really. <laughs> Uh, Your you reaction know. is my reaction. I, I, that's yeah. exactly what I would have thought. Somewhere in the system, it must say, even if there isn't a fingerprint card or antecedent, surely it must just say right. somewhere in the system. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But you're saying the solicitor was saying, no way. If, if there isn't an arrest record, it shouldn't be there. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So you see, when, you know, when we eventually got together with the, uh, with the barrister, Mark Smith, this was an issue for us all because I said to Mark Smith in Chambers, I said, look, you know, both of you, I said, I want you to understand that not for one minute am I saying that DC Hart said, it's fucking you all right. You used to live in Braitmit and I'm lying. I said, I'm not a liar and I'm not a burglar. You know, he said that to me in the car. There is absolutely no question. That's what he said. And the people that are, are the people to this day that know that as an absolute fact are myself, Mr. Hart himself, and Mr. Bush, just the three of us that were in the car. No one else knows that, but I know it as a fact. And so I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but when it actually came to trial and he denied all knowledge of saying it and in actual fact denied any, any knowledge of, 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 um, of Braitmitz, yeah, what are you supposed to think, right? You know, the, if it's not written down, and that's the that's the first thing that I think Glenn and I thought of where that phrase would have come from is just seeing it in your antecedents before coming to uh, you know to your house for the arrest. Mm. Uh, but if that's not there, then exactly, what are you supposed to think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So a quick aside here to clarify something that I was confused about. At this point, Alan's solicitor said that there was not a record of the arrest from the altercation with the neighbor. However, Alan later obtained a fingerprint card from the police that was taken after this altercation in 91. This is a different card from the one taken for the marijuana offense in 85. The card from 91 includes Alan's address, which is in the Brightbit neighborhood of Bolton. So it seems very possible that the arresting officer had seen this fingerprint card, and this is why he made the comment about Alan being the one from Brightbit. So at this point, you've hired the solicitor, and obviously you're going to take a look at the fingerprint evidence. How did you bring Pat Wertheim into the fold? How were you aware of Pat Wertheim, and you know, what led you to Pat? Well, this was, it was a, absolutely a, an amazing fluke how, how this came about. So everybody knew what had happened to me. I didn't keep it quiet, you know. But my best mate at the time, he was, he was out on business in Scotland. Mm. He was in a hotel on his own and happened to turn the TV on. He saw a program called Frontline Scotland. And this program, Frontline Scotland, was all about the McKee case, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and Howard um, watched it in amazement and couldn't wait to ring me and, and say, Alan, you, you wouldn't believe it. You know, I, I just, uh, I've just watched this program all about this, this, this woman, policewoman, who's been accused of leaving a, a, a fingerprints on a back door and blah, blah, blah. And a father is um, the superintendent of Strathclyde Police. Here's his name, Alan, and, and left, left me with a few names. So Ian McKee was one name and Pat Wertheim was the other name. So, you know, this was, this was amazing to me. Um, I, you know, I thought, man, I've got, I've just got to speak to this, the, the, these people, you know, I've got to try and get hold of this guy. So I did a, a search for, for Ian McKee and I very, very quickly found his, um, his phone number. So I, I, I rang the number and, um, left a message on his answering machine. I was out for a couple of hours, and when I came back, my wife said, um, oh, uh, by the way, you know, just just as a, a kind of a side note, she said, there's some chat room you called Ian. I went, <laughs> oh, right, uh, Ian who? She said, oh, I think it was Ian McKee or something. Something about fingerprints. <laughs> so so I, I, I rang Ian, and I, I spoke to him for the very first time. But I explained what had happened to me, and subsequently we, we, we had a few more conversations and you know uh, it doesn't take long for people to listen to me and you know realize that you're not really talking to a burglar you know i'm quite sure that ian formed an opinion that um you know this guy he, he sounds innocent you know so he was keen ian, ian was keen to help me so he said look he said i'm going to put you in touch with um the fingerprint expert that we used he's um, he's based over in texas and um i'm going to leave it with you so that was that. And, and, you know, Pat's, um, you know, I had a, a similar kind of reaction from Pat, but he explained to me that under the circumstances, he was happy to come and look at the evidence. So I'm assuming he didn't, you made arrangements with the, the police saying, you know, I've got an expert that's coming in today. You make sure everything's available for him to come review. There we are in the car and we're just waiting for Pat to come back. Comes back to the car and we say, right, what, what have you got? And so he said, well, Alan, he said, he said, the prince is yours. He said of that, there can be absolutely no doubt. And you know what? My, my jaw just dropped to the floor. The sense of dread was just unbelievable. I, I just thought, you know, how the hell can this happen? And then he said, but, and that was the most welcome, but that I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> 
So, and he said, he said, looking at the lifts, he said, my impression is, is that the surface from which your print Allen is alleged to have come from, he said, I don't think so. My solicitor and I, we, we just looked at each other in disbelief. Uh, it was like, what? And then Pat just went on to explain, you know, some of the basic things that he'd seen. And he said, there's, there's creases in the tape. And he said, it just looks to me like it's come off a complex curved surface. It was kind of a, it was a turning point, this. To get this kind of news off Mr. Wertheim was such a, you know, such a, a light, you know, a turning point. We apparently had doubts, you know. It's pretty clearly, like, right away from that moment, it seems like that's, all right, now there's doubt. Yeah, uh, and I remember saying to Mr. Shimon, well, you know, we're home and dry. Surely there's doubts here. And he just said, not necessarily. <laughs> um, so, so I suppose that was the voice of experience, but, um, just that very fact that we'd shown doubts that formed the basis of our defense, my solicitors and in conjunction with Alan Bale, who came at a later stage, you know, we had eventually two fingerprint experts then saying the same thing that the box lift could not possibly have come off the box. And it actually, it wasn't quite as simple as that. I, rem I, I always remember the very last paragraph of, of Pat's reports where he considers the possibility of a simple clerical error on behalf of the Sokol man. Is this just a simple case where, in actual fact, he's not recorded accurately where the lifts have come from at the time, and he's actually gotten his two fingerprints mixed up. He says he's considered that, and there was actually, in the vase lift, lift one, there is a pattern, which was later referred to as a claw shape and part was of the opinion that a simple switch could not have occurred because this claw shaped pattern could not be seen on the surface of the jewelry box. Yeah. Besides the fact that the claw shape wasn't in evidence on the top surface of the box, of course, the, the vase lift vase number one had all the characteristics of it having come from a curved surface. And so Pat was able to conclude that a simple switch had not occurred. Right. Cause it, it's, it's not because if the, if lift one was clearly from a flat surface with no wrinkles, or you could like even see like the edges squared edge of the, uh, of the corner of the box and had the texture. Yep. It had the texture, yeah, yeah. right. Then it'd be like, oh, it's just switch, switch them back and then now move forward. But it's, it's not that simple because like I said, there's other these same types of features, the wrinkles, to some extent, the scalloping are present to some degree in both. So then it's what, if there was a lift from the, from the jewelry box, well, then where is it? Because neither of these look like it, they came from the jewelry box. Right. Well, I'm glad you've, I'm glad you brought that up actually, uh, Eric, because it, it's something that's, that, that I've always mentioned in my conversations with my numerous solicitors and so on. You know, if the box lift hasn't come from the box and the vase lift hasn't come from the box, then where is the box lift? Yeah, it's just where right. the hell is it? Because we don't have it. You know, it was further evidence to suggest that there was something very wrong. If actually, if in actual fact, there had have been a simple switch, then actually it would have been very easy for us as the defense to make the argument that, hey, Mr. Birchall, he's cocked up. And actually, my, my print hasn't come off uh, the jewelry box. It's come off a vase. Let's have a look at the vase. Ah, yeah. Well, that vase is typical of what was in my trade. Innocent contact, you know? And it right. probably, 
it may well not have even gone to trial. And that would have been the end of the matter. We have a number of attorneys that sometimes listen to our episodes. Was there a plea offer that was made to you? And how seriously did you consider taking it? You know, obviously you wanted to clear your name here. You weren't guilty of this and pleading has ramifications. How tempting was was such a plea offer? We can go back to the um, the day of my arrest. And when I was taken to Rochdale Police Station, I had provided to me a gentleman who was the the resident solicitor for Rochdale mm -hmm. Police for any defense person, if, if you follow me. Yes. Yeah? Yeah, we call that a public defender here. Uh, yeah, okay. When the details were read out between us, that's between myself, this, this defense solicitor, and uh, Michael, uh, Michael Hart, the solicitor said, so what are you going to do, Mr. Hart? And he just turned to the solicitor and he just said, I'm going to do him. The solicitor then turned to me and said, well, Alan, you know, the situation is if you actually, uh, if you actually plead guilty, you will, you will get a lesser sentence. And I said to him, I've just explained to you that I have absolutely nothing to do with this burglary. And, you know, I just kind of sacked him. That was the end of him. Um, mm -hmm. Right. There was no specified deal, right? Of, of they, there, there was no offer on the table of a fine and no time or, or anything minor. It was, right. Probation. It was just a... It was just a general statement of it'll be less, yeah. but not a defined that, less. That, that's, that's correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But, uh, but I was having uh, absolutely none of it. So we're talking about the, the vase and, and your business. Can you describe just a little bit more detail, like what types of things you sold, you know, at, at your store? And it, what, one of the things Clint and I were talking in a previous episode was, you know, just kind of how that business worked. Would you... Did you go looking for merchandise to bring in the store? So I had a discount store. So I sold just about everything that I could buy cheap and, and sell at a profit. So I sold all sorts of things. I sold bags and rucksacks and suitcases and greeting cards and toiletries and cosmetics and fancy goods, anything that was a particular fad for the kids, toys. You name it, it was a kind of all sorts kind of store. And so the, the, the produce, you know, I would, yeah, I would pick up from um, uh, uh, wholesalers and distri distributors, importers, people importing things from China. I think I used, over the years, I probably used about 70-odd different suppliers. Wow. Yeah, mm. I, I mean, and that formed part of my success because, you know, I had a, a great deal of knowledge in the game, you know, without blowing my own trumpet. I was bloody good. You know, I really was good, <laughs> but... but um, but yeah, so I just sold all sorts of stuff. Yeah, and vases would be something that I'd that I would sell every now and again if if, if they if that opportunity arose for me to get some some cheap jewelry boxes. No, little little trinkets that you might argue are, are jewelry boxes. Yeah, but n not not kind of like the description of the jewelry case in question. I mean, that was about fourteen inches high, something like that, and and just not. Not the kind of uh, thing that I would get my hands on. Literally. Well, yeah. Yeah, couldn't wait to, to leave my print there, guys. As, 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 um, <laughs> as Ari Zielenberg often said in, in my conversations with Ari, you know, you may as well have just let, 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 left your passport there. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I had access to 
loads of things. I would touch stuff and I wouldn't buy them, but I'd touch them. Uh, do, you, do you understand me? So I could see, I could perhaps see sure. something right. in a box and, and stuff, but you know, they could be available to me in that sense that I would pick them off a shelf and then just put them back if I didn't like them. Or they could be, you know, in, in a, you know, in a carton, you know, there might be kind of a carton with, with maybe 36 in a box, you know, and I could just take the top off and I could reach, reach down and, and pull a vase out and have a look and decide whether I want to buy the whole carton or not. You know, so, so yeah, the, the point being that, that my prints could be on articles in other people's homes effectively throughout the country. The district where I used to go to buy stuff was one of the biggest wholesale districts in the UK. And where was yeah, that? Yeah, well, that's in the, the Manchester area, in the Strangeways. Mm, in the yeah, the Manchester Strangeways area of Manchester. The, the, the only other big place would, would be London. Well, London and Birmingham. But Manchester was, was probably the biggest, to be quite honest. Alan, when did you actually start your business, like such that you were in a position to be handling these items? From the time of the burglary in 99, how, how many years before that had you been doing this sort of checking out merchandise? We as a family actually ran a business in a different area when it was actually my father's business. So, okay. so, that, was, so that was when I was, um, that was when I was 17. So I don't know, you do the maths, guys. I don't know what date that is. Okay. But, um, so yeah, uh, I mean, I'm 60 now, so... So when I was 17, my father was in business and that was a very active part um, in, in my father's business. So this goes back to even the 80s then. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so possibly 20 some years where you had been handling potential items. Is that, yeah. is that fair? Oh, it's completely wow. fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. glad I asked that question. I had no idea. I oh, yeah. Okay. So where, where was the shop that, that you were running at the time in 99? Okay, so that was that was um, that was my store, and that was that was yeah. um, that was based in Bolton. So Bolton is near near Manchester, in the the northwest of England. It's like Bolton and Rochdale, both in the greater Manchester area. Bolton just to the northwest of Manchester, and Rochdale to the northeast. Well, if you say so, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know much about Rochdale. I'm looking at uh, at just Google Maps here. Uh, Right, so you're not quite as clever as I thought you were, then. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's not. I'll uh, take your word for it, Eric. Yeah, but but it looks like you know both both of those of those towns, Bolton and Rochdale. You know, any shops in those areas are are likely to get their merchandise you know through wholesalers in Manchester. Oh, absolutely. And one one particularly important point to make there is a wholesaler that I frequented. One of my biggest suppliers was a wholesaler called Rison's Cash and Carry. Now they were uh, an Asian affair, lovely people. So they were wholesalers, but they also had a shop themselves in Rochdale. Okay. Mm. When Panorama, so Panorama is the, the TV program that uh, did fast two 40 minute programs about my case. Shelley Joffrey, who was the presenter, she actually interviewed the Shears family on two occasions. Right. And Mrs. Shears accepted that she actually shopped in all of these kind of stores in Rochdale. Uh, so there's, there's that, that path yeah. that where your fingerprint could have gone, you know, you going down to, Ma to uh, Manchester to Strangeways and then uh, onto surface of a vase or something, and then, you know, into the home. And now just because of the 
the lack of documentation from the SACO and the, you know, whether that was a switch of things or mislabeling, it, it makes sense as to how your print could have uh, ended up there on some surface, you know, still no way to tell exactly which one, uh, you know, in that home back in 99. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be fair to say that you would have to be an idiot to not accept that my, my prints could end up in people's homes up and down the country. It's just a clear possibility. The vases that Mrs. Shears owned, she has made a statement that they were bought in particular areas. I think she knows where she bought one from. She's not sure where she bought sure. the other one from, but she knows that she didn't buy them from Rochdale, but she knows, or at least she thinks she knows that she did buy one from Northampton. Sure. But, but like you had said, you know, the, you know, these wholesalers in Manchester, you know, would often supply all areas of the yeah. UK. Yeah. So heading all the way down to Northampton is, uh, and I just looked up on Google maps again, this is, I don't know, about halfway, a little more than halfway towards London from the Manchester area. Yeah. Yeah. But, but entirely plausible. Am I correct though, that her statements about where they came from and when she purchased them they actually didn't, those statements didn't actually happen until after you were convicted, right? I mean, at, at the time of the trial, she wasn't actually sure where she had bought those. Am, am I right in that? <laughs> yeah, uh, very nicely spotted. Yeah, 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 you're absolutely right. She seemed to have a change of stance by the time we got to the appeal. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Yeah, and a more, and, okay. and a more specific uh, Much more specific. A, a more specific description of her cleaning regime by the time we got exactly. the appeal. That's my recollection because that becomes pretty critical because even if they're willing to accept, you, you know, you touch all these objects, this is why the appellate court and the CCRC basically said it wouldn't have mattered anyway because the print had to have been deposited in this very short time frame because of this cleaning regime. Even if she had purchased the vase nine years before in another shop, wouldn't have mattered because her cleaning regime is so specific and thorough and frequent. There's no way that it could have lasted on a surface that long. Uh, that, that is correct. That, that is entirely the, the, the way that the appeal court viewed matters. Yeah, it was Mrs. Shear's right. evidence was accepted wholly, and it was her cleaning regime and the position of these articles that convinced the appeal courts that a print effectively in that house had to be that of a burglar. Right. Okay. So this is, this is my theory. So because of Mrs. Shears's cleaning regime, the court say that any print deposited therefore, and mine, which comes under that category, therefore I must be a burglar. Mrs. Shears did clean these articles. Those articles were clean. She dusted and polished, and they were so clean that I could not have deposited my print upon any of those surfaces, whether it be the box or any of the vases, it doesn't matter. Of the exhibits, they were all clean. And so I have been convicted on that basis by the appeal court. What's never been discussed at any length at all, is the unidentified print on TB1, the vase lift. Right. Well, 
Alan, you'll, you'll be happy to hear that Eric and I actually did discuss this in our previous episodes, because if they were so clean, why were they full of all these other fingerprints, fragments, and smudges? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So we've got a print on TB1 that is identifiable, but isn't on the database. Okay. Uh, this print could be, it could be an innocent print from the point of mm -hmm. view that it could be one of the Shears family. Or maybe in the shopkeep who sold the item in the store. Yeah. It could be um, a family member, mm -hmm. in which case, if it did, then my theory falls down immediately. But it specifically is not my print, and it specifically right. is not Mrs. Shears' print. That's what we have been told, but there's something we're going to discuss with you a little bit later. Eric yep. and I are interested in trying to get the elimination prints, if available, and your fingerprints, because we've actually never confirmed any of these identifications. We'd like to actually see that for ourselves as well. When you say you've never seen any of these identifications, I don't think there's any doubt that what has been said to be Mrs. Shears' prints. Uh, Eric and I wouldn't mind taking a look. Yeah, yeah, no, no problem at all. Uh, having said that, I don't have a set of elimination prints to give you. Okay. Yeah. Did any of the defense experts ever get a copy of her prints? No. Mm. no. Okay. So I, mean, I don't think so. No, no. Yeah. So, so we're, we're taking GMP's word that these are good identifications and that all other experts would agree those are clearly her prints. Eric and I are not as willing to accept that without checking it ourselves. You know, guys, I would be very, very surprised if it's not the case. Eric and I would not be. All right. Yeah, the, the your well, the, your print on there is like crisp yeah. and clear and big and and you know very easy to compare. Yeah. The other prints that they're pointing out as being from Mrs. Shears are smaller and more distorted, more fragmentary. Mm -hmm. Uh, so much more limited, much more limited. And from what we can see in the images available, some of them look to be okay. Yeah. That I'm assuming that everything matches up. That looks like there's enough to reach that identification conclusion, mm -hmm. but other bits looked so fragmentary that it seems a stretch to, uh, to reach that same conclusion for, for all of them. But it's also not clear as to which ones are ID. So. Well, what I can tell you is that, uh, you know, Mr. Kershaw of the prosecution, Kevin Kershaw, he's made those identifications. Mm -hmm. And in, in addition to that, the very, very last person to get involved is Goodwin. Yeah. Now, Goodwin confirms those ideas. Yeah. For Eric and I, our sake, we'd like to confirm this ourselves because there were some practices going on in the UK at that time. And it's actually how Shirley McKee ends up having her fingerprint erroneously identified, mm, where right. the examiners would try to shore up any unexplained fingerprints and sometimes make identification decisions on very limited information yeah. just to kind of clean up the case uh -huh. and attribute them to various yeah. sources. That's exactly how Shirley McKee ended up being associated in her case. Yeah, so it's yeah. Just, it's why Eric and I are a little skeptical having seen the other fingerprints on that lift beyond yours, which Eric said is quite clear and agreed. Mm -hmm. But those mm -hmm. other ones are much more complex. Okay. And I, I'm not saying that they are or aren't, and they could very well be, but Eric and I are not, uh, I guess, willing to accept it on face value because these two English experts have agreed, oh, yeah, yeah, they're a good match. Mm -hmm. We'd like to see it for ourselves. Well, okay. I don't know how we can... 
get there, but um, maybe that's true. For, you know, a later conversation. So, so let's just get back to what I was calling my theory. So, so we definitely yeah. have a prince that is easily identifiable from what I can gather, but it has not been identified because it's not on the database. If that print does not belong to one of this year's family or anyone who had access to that house in the time frame that's relevant after the Thursday, prior to that, prior to that uh, weekend of the burglary. So if that unidentified print does not belong to one of the family or a friend who happens to have appeared in the house that the Shears have not made the prosecution aware of, then that print has got to be a burglar. So there's, there seems to be right. Three main possibilities that it's someone in the family. If it was someone that they already had prints of, then they would have likely said that already because it was in their interest to say so. Someone with, uh, you know, other innocent access, you know, the shopkeeper or someone that's come to visit the home. The third option being the, you know, whoever was actually there in the house stealing stuff that day. Okay. All right. So if we ignore what the, what the appeal courts have said, yes, it's got to be either a family print, it's got to be innocent contacts, or it's got to be a burglar. Those are the three options. But if it's not anything to do with the family, if we adopt the method, methodology of the appeal court, it cannot be an innocent print. Right. Do you follow me? Right. Mm. The process that you apply to me to make me guilty, it's either got to be resolute such that any print that doesn't belong to the family, any print that is on any of those objects, according to the appellate court, must be a burglar. Yeah. First of all, you've got to have two burglars that, that are complete idiots. One idiot leaves a print off an article that can, cannot be more incriminating than a jewelry box. And then his accomplice leaves his print on a vase. A vase that they don't take with them. They don't steal. They just pick it either. He picks it up, puts it back down. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It. So, so you see, the thing is, right, unfortunately, it doesn't work for the appeal court because it just, I'm sorry, Mr. Appeal Court, it just is not acceptable that both of those prints belong to burglars. I am just not having it. If you agree with my theory, then... You can't pick and choose. You can't have one being a burglar and one not being a burglar. Right. And so the only other option is that it's an innocent print. And if that's an innocent print, why can't yours be an innocent print? Absolutely. That's my point. So, Alan, Eric and I thought we would share this with you. And this, I don't know if how this is going to change your perspective, but Eric and I are not necessarily convinced that, that this cleaning regime is such that it would remove all prints mm. from these surfaces yep. and necessarily be to the extent that, you know, if the print was placed on an odd place on this vase, uh, you know, on a neck, on the back of the neck, mm. or on some place that maybe doesn't get significant cleaning, yep. that some of these prints could actually last for a long time. Now, yep. what Eric and I discussed in our previous episodes is there was some research that was done in 2012, had nothing to do with your case. It was a group of researchers out of Israel who had published in one of our professional journals. Not uh, Mrs. Azuri. Are you familiar with that name, Azuri? She is one of the authors in the article. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm aware of her, actually, but I I, I wasn't aware of what you're about to tell me. All right. Well, this is fascinating. Um, Yeah. (laughs) See where this goes. Well, she is one of the authors. She's one of the co-authors in this. 
Yeah. But they have published a couple of articles about the longevity of prints and their durability on surfaces, even when exposed to cleaning products. Yeah. And they had done a number of tests where they had tried to spray with various cleaning products and wipe prints off that had been deposited on the surface and found that simply cleaning a surface, even with cleaning products, does not necessarily destroy all prints on a surface. Yeah. So having knowledge of those articles in my head, there's no reason that some of these could not have been left on the surface for a very long time. And again, I'm still very doubtful of the, I guess, to the degree and significance to which this homeowner was cleaning these surfaces such that she could in any way testify that her cleaning process would have guaranteed all prints would have been destroyed off that surface. I don't accept that as a premise. I believe mm. that it's quite reasonable that prints could have lasted on these surfaces for a significant period of time. Mm. So are you aware of, of this research? I wasn't aware of the reach research of uh, Mrs. Azuri. I am aware of her name, and there has been some indirect contact with Mrs. Azuri over this time frame. To be quite honest, there's, there's a lot of fingerprint experts looked into my case. It's just not Mr. Wertheim and Mr. Bale. There are a lot of people that, that have looked into my case. It's interesting what you tell me. Very interesting. I, I did listen to podcast you did with, is it Simon Bunter? Simon Bunter, yes. Yeah, I listened to the whole of that yesterday. That was very, very interesting. And of course, Simon came up with some instances where it proved exactly what um, what you've just told me, that the prints, right. particularly prints left in um, some kind of grease or whatever, it makes them extremely hardy. And further, the, in that paper, they tested six different cleaning yep. agents and five of the six had the possibility of leaving prints behind. It was, I believe, Glenn, you were saying it was only the the degreaser cleaning agent that was, you know, more consistently successful at removing all the prints from a surface. One out of six, Alan, um, was effective in cleaning all the prints. Five out of six had left prints behind. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm picturing this homeowner with yep. a little bit of spray and a little bit of polish. Mm -hmm. And is she really getting every inch of that surface? Is she really digging in and putting pressure on it to clean yep. it off? Yeah. To me, that is the most well, this case has so many bizarre yeah. things that had to have happened to make this come together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that would be one of it is that in in all of her cleaning, she simply didn't disturb all the prints on the surface. Yeah, absolutely. The experts uh, that have been involved in my case, they all agree, you know, that their impres impression is, is that when they look at the lifts, there's just too much going on for, for those surfaces to have been thoroughly cleaned. You've got prints yep. on top of prints. You've got a print going one Indeed. way. You've got a print going the other way. You know, you've got areas where there's been blotchy adherence of the fingerprint powder. Even the, the crime scene examiner himself, where he actually said that the surface of the box was so contaminated that he found it difficult to take the lift and that he would describe the surface like as if it had jam on it. Right. What was going on there at trial was the prosecution's attempt to try and explain why the background noise didn't appear. Right. And so they wanted a few goals at this. They wanted like several reasons as to what it might be. So Mr. Kershaw suggested that we are unaware of what 
contaminants might possibly be have been in that bedroom and that effectively either dirt or some kind of medium had filled in the the, the gaps such that the grain didn't appear in the lift, or in actual fact, the detergents used by Mrs. Shears effectively rendered the top surface smooth. She doesn't sound like something that was cleaned two days before. Well, yeah, yeah. Nor is that really plausible based on some of Alan Bale's tests as well, and found that, in fact, the cleaning products, if anything, enhanced the background pattern, not filled in the gaps. Well, yeah, exactly. And, 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 and of course, Pat Wertheim found this conchoidal fracture, these two particulates, beneath the surface of the tape. I mean, what are they doing there? What, what's, you know, what's going on there? You know, she either, she either does a, a, a proper cleaning job or she doesn't. And I don't believe she did. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. There, there isn't anyone I'm, I know. I'm with you. And I feel like her testimony or her statement is one of the critical things that ends up convicting you. I'm not oh, oh, yeah. trying to place blame, but this statement is so critical. Oh, yeah. It affects everything else. It does. Because Everyone assumes that the print had to have come after this very rigorous cleaning process, but I'm, I'm sorry, I don't see that evidence in this lift and yeah. the other research even disputes that it yeah, yeah, would be yeah, that effective. Yeah. But the thing is, guys, is the fly in the ointment there, it was Alan Bale's opinion. There wasn't a source in the police's possession of either lift. If, if Alan Bale were to be correct, it would allow Mrs. Shears to be correct about the description that she makes about cleaning the items that she's talking about. But, in, but unfortunately, both of the lifts didn't come off any of those articles that she's saying she scrubbed. Right. Exactly. And I've got to say, you know, we've got to bring up um, the report from uh, Ari Zielenberg, who comes to the same conclusion. Ari Zielenberg eliminates the box as a source. He eliminates vase one and vase two. There were two vases involved. One was, a, I think it was a white vase with a blue pattern. And the other, yes. the other vase was um, a white vase with a yellow pattern. Yes. <laughs> so Ari Zielenberg eliminates both of those vases, Ari Zillenberg's conclusion is that it has to be quite a stubby little complex curved object of which there only exists one within the police exhibits. So this is a little white vase of quite small dimensions, but this vase has been eliminated as a saw by Mr. Kershaw, but he does not explain why. It's, it's been eliminated as a source by Alan Bale because the claw shape on the vase lift doesn't appear on that object. Right. And with the box lift, there is an artifact that was discussed at great length at appeal. But there is a feature in the box lift that cannot be seen on the box and cannot be seen on this little stubby vase. So from that point of view, Alan Bale eliminates this little stubby vase. The only one actually that Ari Zielenberg had given possibilities to. But in actual facts, in conversation with Ari, Ari has also eliminated this little stubby vase that's in the police possession. So these experts, based on their observations and their assessments and their own tests, they're proposition is that the two lifts in this case are coming from an object or objects that we as of yet have not identified that's that's correct that's correct they may not have come from a vase that we already have seen or have in the police possession or the jewelry box but some other unknown object but 
we can still say would have had to have come from the scene, again, based on the supposition that Mrs. Shear's prints are on both lips. That's why, again, Eric and I are so interested in seeing her prints just to confirm. Yeah, that's the position of both Mr. Mr. Bale and Mr. Zeelenberg. You know, whatever the object was, it almost certainly came from within Mrs. Shear's home. Now, I've never gone with that. I have never, ever accepted that as being facts. I do accept Mm -hmm. that the evidence points towards the object did come from within Mrs. Shear's home, but you cannot discount the possibility that it is not the case and that the article or articles that the lifts came from, they actually may not have come from Mrs. Shear's home. All I can say is that I am not a burglar. And so what has happened right. is beyond me. And it's and it was very unfair in actual fact, you know, for a trial for the the, bar, the, the prosecution barristers to even ask me, well, if it's not come off the box, what has happened? Uh, it's just not for me to say. And if I do come up with a, a, a suggestion, it's also unfair if I am proved to be wrong to kind of use that against me. I don't know what's happened, as, as was emphasized actually by my solicitor in our appeal to the Criminal Case Review Commission. The, the, criminal, reviews, the, the criminal case were quoting the appeal court and suggesting that my case was that the print had been planted and that I'd been somehow framed. And that was just kind of one scenario, ultimately core of my defense was that the print did not come off the box. And that's it. That is my defense. And the doubt begins there. And really, the case should stop there. Right. I've just got to put the record straight here that, you know, prior to the trial, we got together, myself, my solicitor, Mr. Wertheim, my barrister, we decided what we were going to do. And we we decided that the, the, the main thing, the most difficult thing for the prosecution to get by was the lack of background noise. The other things were relevant and we'll bring them up, but that was going to be our case. We didn't decide there and then that we were just going to go for the prosecution and make all kinds of allegations. It just kind of came out. I I mean, it just, the bloody trial just went, you know, I don't know if you use this word, but it just went tits up. (laughs) Yeah, we know that. It did, yeah. I I mean, you know, prior to going, prior to actually going into the court, I did emphasize to Mark Smith that enough, he must not run the trial on the basis that I may actually be inaccurate about what I alleged that Mr. Hart said to me. That was very important for me. I was not going to back down. Mr. Hart, D.C. Hart, he lied at trial. There is absolutely no doubt he lied. And, you know, maybe that had an effect on Mark Smith, my barrister, in the way that he phrased the questions. Because he did say, he did ask me what was said in the car. And I remember being on the stand and I, I was quite surprised that Mark was wanted to bring it up, you know. But, uh, you know, I just had to answer the question and answer the question honestly. And it went down right. like a lead balloon. Much of the trial was quite mundane. Listening to fingerprint evidence, unless you're in the profession, it's one of the most boring things you can listen to in your life. It isn't interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, it just it just wasn't interesting. You know what I mean? The, 
it, one of the jurors even even fell asleep. And it actually annoyed me that this guy had fallen asleep because I thought, well, how the hell can you how can you make a decision if, if you're not even awake? And I was annoyed with the with the trial judge that something wasn't even done about it. So so yeah, it was quite mundane. Most of it was mundane. Even at, like Alan Bale arguing with the um, with the prosecution about because we've not brought that up, you know, Alan Bale argued that the fragmentary print on TB2, which was later, obviously, identified as Mrs. Shears, Alan Bale argued that that print was identifiable. But the prosecution were having none of it, and there was, there was quite an argument. I, I, I don't know whether he came out in trial, but, but it, it, in, in subsequent paper work that came through, the prosecution argued that the elimination prints weren't good enough to be able to be used to make the identification. So that was their excuse as to why they hadn't ID'd Mrs. Shear's print on the, bo okay. on the box that's, list. That's actually a very common thing. Yeah. That's a very common issue in our field. We routinely get poorly taken elimination prints yeah. that are effectively not useful. Right. Actually, some of my fingerprint experts disagree. They say it, it doesn't. So, well, you know, they must be familiar with what the process was, and they say, no, that is not the case. They could have been used quite easily to make the ID. So they do. They well, flatly. that would mean that one of them has a copy of those then or have seen copies of it. I mean, if they're offering an opinion that they were yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, good point, Glenn, but I don't think that's the case. I think it's it's a comment made by an expert. All right, well, no, no matter. Uh, it's something that Eric and I can try to follow up on later. Yeah. So that's what the prosecution, that is their excuse as to why the, 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 the idea of Mrs. Shear's print was not made. And in actual fact, those elimination prints were binned, okay? They were, they were destroyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hmm. very convenient. And so it was only after the the trial that the elimination prints were obtained on a second occasion, and then those those elimination prints were used by Mr. Kershaw, and he was able to identify Mrs. Shear's prints. So yeah, I was just straying away there from what I was about, you know, what I was saying at trial. But um, yeah, so we had all this kind of like you know boring boring fingerprint evidence. Jury members falling asleep. And then all of a sudden, you know, Mark Smith says, what did the arresting officer say to you in the car? And so I say, he said to me, it's fucking you all right. You used to live in break. You used to live in break me, didn't you? And the trial judge, his head jolted. I, 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 I remember seeing him actually jump up, hmm. you know, and that was, that was very interesting. That, that kind of live, livened things up, but it went down like a lead balloon. <laughs> Absolutely went down like a lead balloon because I made an accusation, which is true. And I can't emphasize that enough. I do not back down with what I am saying, but I made an accusation that I couldn't prove. And it's just not going to do me any good. And Michael Mansfield, who was the, the barrister, well, the QC, who represented me at, um, at the appeal and having met him, and sat in his office, I can understand why. Mr. Mansfield is one of the most charismatic men I've ever met in my life. And mm. when I sat down with him, his understanding of the case was absolutely unbelievable. Oh. You know, he just knew every single facet of the case. But anyway, to get to the point, Mr. Mansfield criticized my barrister at trial quite heavily. And he criticized my, my solicitor, Mr. Shimmin. 
the way that the defense challenged the prosecution. It's actually very common here in the United States on an appeal that you often will say that there was a problem in the defense or, um, uh, Eric, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Inadequate yep. counsel. Um, thank you. Yes. Yes. That That's a very common ap appellate strategy. And, and even trial defense attorneys accept, you know, I'd rather this guy win his appeal and I'll take the the criticism on appeal. So it's right. it's not not uncommon for that to occur. Yeah, yeah. I've got to say, just 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 to make it absolutely clear, um, that that was Mr. Mansfield's opinion, and he's entitled to criticize uh, one of his peers. But that isn't my opinion. Okay, I, I, I have a lot of sympathy sure. for my solicitor, and I have a lot of sympathy for my barrister, Mark Smith. They were involved in a case that was unlike any other case that's, that they had ever seen and perhaps sure. unlike any other case that's ever existed. So they had nothing to draw upon, nothing to draw upon at all. Right. And they had, you know, they had every reason to believe that something very, very strange had gone on. And whilst there was never a direct accusation by Mark Smith, we had to accuse Mr. Birchall of lying because, as the trial judge quite accurately said, if Mr. Birchall was not accurate with what he did, he had to be lying because there was no room for not lying. And it's true. There was no, there was no middle ground for Mr. Birchall. He either took that lift off that box or he was lying. So, Alan, um, we talked about through you know, this case and multiple different angles and different theories and. You know, I think, I mean, it's just been a whole very interesting journey, obviously. But um, now that the the court cases, there's no real legal avenues to pursue right now. What's life been like in the past 10, 15 years? I'm curious about your business, if that's still something that you're you're operating or you know, just in general, you know, where are you at in life right now? Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. So the discount store that I operated at the time of my, my arrest was, it, it, it continued to operate whilst I was in prison. Right. My mother, my father, my wife, they, and the staff, they managed to keep it going. It did deteriorate though. It deteriorated, but I, uh, I came out of prison. I got reinvolved to some extent was able to kind of like get my teeth back into the business. Did you still handle objects the way you used to, though? I mean, would would you still go to distributors and pick up and hold oh, yeah. objects? Or did yeah, every yeah. time you pick up an object, did it come to your mind like, oh, I better wipe that thing down well, before I put it back? Well, I did actually. I, I did start wiping things down, but, you know, in the end, I just started, <laughs> I just started thinking this is bloody stupid, Alan. You know, you, you can't just, you cannot carry on like this. No, I, I just continued as, as before. Actually, whilst the appeal was going on, I actually opened up another shop, which was a greeting card store. Well, my business actually went from strength to strength despite uh, my problems. And uh, I, I did have many years of profits. And the original discount store, I actually, I, I eventually sold that. I got a, a hell of a lot of money from that. Well, uh, I actually stopped being an active, um, actively in my business at the age of 47 and I retired about two or three years later, maybe, maybe at the age of 51 and just, um, fortunately I'd made enough money despite the, the, the case cost me, um, well in excess of a hundred thousand pounds. I made a lot of money. I retired early. I did have a few years of grace where I got a motorhome and ended up 
touring the country and, and kind of forgetting about my problems and stuff. Around the time that I lost the appeal, I'd been looking after my father for four or five years. He developed dementia and uh, my father died. It coincided almost exactly with losing the appeal, which is just the way things mm. go. I mean, there's so many other things I could just tell you how the damn thing interfered mm. with my life, but yeah, that happened. And then shortly after my father dying, I noticed my mother saying some rather unusual things. And, um, my mother was then diagnosed with early onset dementia. As we speak to each other right now, I have effectively spent nearly 10 years looking after my parents. I was extremely close to my mum and dad and it's payback time. And I cannot emphasize how difficult my life has been with both of my parents developing dementia. To say that I am pissed off is putting it lightly. I am a wealthy man. I'm now 60. And to be quite honest, my youth has gone. I've spent the best years of my life either looking after my parents or fighting a case that was effectively impossible to win. And I just feel like I've been battling for damn near 25 years. And I'm right. very, very, very tired. Running up a hill with no sight in end. Yeah. My, the, the case got in the way to such an extent that my marriage nearly fall, fell to pieces. I've had to cope with my wife being slightly strange over all this period, only to find out eventually that she had a very, very rare brain malformation, which she's recently had uh, an operation for. My wife actually had a fit, fell over the stove and set her hands on fire. Oh my. Oh, yeah. And so she lost all the fingers to her left hand. She's just burned herself beyond recognition. She spent 12 years, 12, sorry, 12 weeks in intensive care. We thought she was going to lose a, a hand, but it's saved, but it's just a complete mess. The surgeons took massive grafts off her legs and off her arm. I've had a lot to cope with guys, a hell of a lot, but I'm still alive. And I say that because mm. quite honest, I'm very strong. And I don't say that to kind of like impress. I just am. I'm very strong. And what's happened to me was sufficient to actually kill a lot of people. I have absolutely no doubt that a lot of people in my position would have committed suicide. But that's never an option for me. I've always been a fighter. And I will continue to fight. And your daughter? My daughter was four when, when I was originally arrested. She was at that stage when little girls are so beautiful. You know, they just started to talk and they're toddling about and they are just absolutely gorgeous. And, you know, I just missed all that part. All that just went. I, I, I've just missed out so much. And I, but I'm not very good at mourning. I, I'm really not. My daughter now is actually, she's 27. She's going to get married next April. Well. Mazel tov. I, I bought a, a, a little a little house, which is almost an exact replica of the little cottage that I lived in, which was the first one where I had the issue with Mr. Brotherson. The upshot of my life is that my business has always survived and I've been very successful, but my personal life has just been an absolute car crash for many, many reasons. But it, it's everything's very, very hard to call with right now. And it isn't your fault but you guys getting involved with me and I did tell you 
that it would make me ill. It, it actually has. Hmm. The, the, to, to have to go through all the documentation once again and read all the crap prosecution has said, the damned excuses they come up with, the appeal courts, attitude to the case. You know, this is something that listeners may not have realized, and I'm glad you're bringing it up. When I reached out to you, I was very excited to talk to you about the case, but it never occurred to me how painful it would be to you to relive all of this. Oh. Our listeners will be, of course, fascinated by the fingerprint aspects, and they'll want to see the images, and they'll want to, you know, have a connection with this case, too. Yeah. But it just it never occurred to me, and should have, uh, obviously, and, and I think listeners hearing this will just realize how damn painful that must be to have to relive all of this thing when you know you yeah. are innocent. Yeah. And yeah. all the pain and trauma it has caused you in your life. That's mm. it's just something that none of us can really fathom or appreciate what you have gone. Through. Yeah, and, and you know, it's this is the third time that I've done it. I did it. Uh, I did it with Rachel Babler, obviously your colleague, and I also mm -hmm. did it with another chap mm -hmm. from um, from Australia. Uh, and each and every time, it, it made me ill. You know, I'm I'm not indestructible. To lose this case was just such a disappointment. You know, I don't lose things. That's me. You know, I'm a winner. Mm. I work hard. Uh, I mean, when, you know, when I was at college, I was not the most intelligent student, but by God, nobody worked like me. I was absolutely determined to do well. And, and that's been my way in life. You know, I have my limitations, but uh, hard work can always get you a long way. And I've always worked hard. And the case, the case has taken up so much time i put so much effort into it and i've got absolutely nothing back and it absolutely sickens me beyond description i just cannot tell you how much it hurts how much it hurts that mr birchall the crime scene examiner has gotten away with this it just kills me it absolutely kills me. And if there is one iota of possibility that I can get back into this case, only after my mother, God bless her, only after my mother leaves me, if there is an avenue that I can take to get back in, by God, I will be going for it. And I'll go for it if it kills me. Hmm. I will fight this case till the day I die. And I will never, ever give in. And I will never forgive. And I will never forget, I am bitter as hell. Well, I, I, all I can say is just thank you from the bottom of our heart for, for sharing this story. Yes. Again, you know, we can't help but look at it from an analytical standpoint yep. of the fingerprint evidence. But that's why we wanted to talk to you so that, again, people understood that. Let's, let's say Pat Wertheim's theory is correct. This was just a mistake on Birchall's part, not malice. Not even lying necessarily, just simply a mistake. He had sloppy procedures, uh, didn't document necessarily very well, maybe made multiple lifts and simply mixed up or forgot or didn't realize an error had occurred during evidence collection. That then amazingly has this coincidence that you have handled an object and it has lasted on the surface yep. even past possible cleaning. Uh -huh. And an amazing confluence of events that come together, but just the presence of your fingerprint at that scene, mm. regardless of how it got there, 
shouldn't necessarily have been the one and only thing that convicts you of this crime. That, that's, you know, what we kind of want our listeners to get out of this, yeah. that there can be explanations mm -hmm. for how fingerprints get on surfaces. Hmm. We might be in the business of making identifications and identifying the source of a print, but that's about as far as it should go. And there can be other explanations on how that, how those prints get there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's my thought. That's my takeaway. Yeah. You know, and like Clint said, you know, we can't express you know, our gratitude enough and understand, or at least definitely hear the, you know, the pain that this, uh, that reliving all this, uh, is bringing up. I just hope that, that telling the story and having it out there for, you know, the listeners we have both fingerprint folks and, and, you know, other just interested people, you know, all over that, that they can take this story and that this has the possibility, you know, even if there is no other avenue in your case of being a, a learning opportunity for others mm -hmm. so that this, this kind of thing doesn't happen again where experts can can look into you know these other possible explanations they can if there is a, do a problem with documentation that they can admit that there is a problem mm. right and and you know own up to an innocent mistake if that's in fact yeah. what happened yeah. and and then they can understand the importance of documentation and and why we have to go to such lengths because it has such consequence and you don't know ahead of time which is the case where you're going to need right. the, this extensive documentation. So it just has to be done all the time. And, and, and the fact that courts just have to, um, you know, take a less dogged view over, over expert evidence. You know, it's not the all and be all. I think there's too, there's too many assumptions going on in, in my case. Mm. You know, Mr. Mansfield said that the, the, the appeal court could quite easily have, um, have given me the case. They just chose not to. They chose not to believe me. Right. right. Anyway, I mean, Eric, Glenn, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And, and I must say, despite the fact that we've been talking with one another for a very long time, you know, there's, there's a hell of a lot that we haven't discussed. Yeah. If, despite yes. my assertions to you, how bad it's made me feel, if there is ever a time where you want to reunite with me, if your listeners have got questions and they say, ah, yeah, but what if this, what if that, and what about that and the other, if there are questions that need to be answered, I I'm up for another conversation if, if, if it has to take place and I would, uh, I would welcome it. I appreciate that offer. Yeah. We, we do get feedback from listeners and we can collate some questions if some come in and if there, you know, are some significant ones and we want to kind of approach that, we'll, we'll reach out to you and definitely let you know. And when this does post, there's even sometimes comments that go along with the posts that you can probably see as well. But I, we suspect this one will resonate for a long time with our listeners and generate some discussion in the field. Yeah. Well, Alan, certainly, again, thank you for your very precious time. And we do appreciate it. And, and just want to wish you well uh, with your, your parents' health, your daughter's upcoming wedding, a new house for her. Hopefully she gets a good neighbor in the neighboring <laughs> cottage. <laughs> yeah. And we really do appreciate all of your stories and taking time to, to share that with us. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for your, your interest, both of you. It's, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. And that will do it here for our uh, series on the Alan McNamara case. So thank you guys for all joining us uh, here for these parts. If there's any questions like Alan and Glenn were saying, please send us emails, eric at rayforensics.com. 
and glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. And with this case, we're putting some of the images uh, online. So go to patreon.com slash podcast. And uh, there's some images that you can find for everyone. And there's uh, some additional information that are for our uh, patrons on that website. You can, but you can log on there and get some of that extra information and see some of the images that we've been talking about. You can also visit our webpage, doubleloopodcast.com. We've got uh, the episodes there and also a uh, an online store where you can buy some uh, some Double Loop Podcast merchandise and help support the show. So as always, the uh, opinions expressed in the show are those of the speaker, not necessarily anyone that they work for. Uh, thanks for joining us and talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. <laughs>